0: We hit record and we go. Hey, this is Paul Ollinger. Welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. I'm happy you're here. I hope you're having a great day. I hope you're enjoying your life, giving yourself permission to enjoy your life. I'm going to talk about the permission I didn't give myself in just a minute. Hey, but before I do, this week's guest is called, wait, I'm going to use the active voice, not the passive voice. Bill Gates calls this week's guest, a data nerd after my own heart. Will McCaskill is an associate professor of philosophy and research fellow at the University of Oxford, and he's written a book called Doing Good Better, which is all about effective altruism and how to use your dollars most effectively to make the world a better place. I'll dive in deep on his intro in just one second, but I want to say, oh, first of all, I want to say thank you to A.J. Jacobs. Rather, should I say, I am grateful to you, A.J. Jacobs, for introducing you, introducing me, not you. You already knew him for introducing me to Will McCaskill, this week's guest. This is our first episode in two weeks. We gave ourselves a week off, partially, mostly, because I was on vacation for two weeks. And I learned something about myself, my modern self, on this vacation. And that's that vacation makes me very nervous. I have a hard time relaxing on vacation. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because, uh, well... What's a great thing to do when you can't relax? Well, overthink. That's the best thing you can do. We went to Jamaica for a few days with some friends, and then we went to this beautiful ranch in Colorado and rode horses and did all kinds of other stuff. I'm not much of a horse guy. I actually fell off a horse. There's this moment when you're falling off a horse when you find yourself thinking, this is me falling off a horse, and then you complete the fall. I had that experience. Wasn't hurt. Thanks for your concern. Anyway, the bigger thing that I learned about myself was that lacking, let me take a step back for a second. As many of you, perhaps all of you, most of you, some of you know, I worked at Facebook, I had a great outcome and I left Facebook and I was like, uh, I'm just going to not work. I'm going to retire at 42 years old. And then when I retired, I felt like uh, a completely worthless piece of shit who was by himself in his big house, pretending to be interested in getting his golf handicap down to single digits. Well, I was interested in that, but I never accomplished it. But suffice to say, that wasn't enough of a focus for me in my life to be happy. Eventually, along eventually, I rededicated myself to writing and stand-up comedy and eventually, eventually got to this podcast. Well, there still exists in the back of my head this voice that says, for some reason, because I don't have a paycheck, that what I'm doing, the work I'm doing isn't quite real. And I know I can look at that thought and I can say, that's not true. I am working hard. I am making good progress, but because I don't have a contract or a Netflix special, I feel like I'm not accomplishing anything. And I know this is the voice in the back of my head playing games with me. And on vacation, when you don't have a traditional job to walk away from, and vacation is a real different experience from your day-to-day life, that's like like on a vacation that you don't feel that you've earned, those you're a worthless piece of shit voices in the back of your head really start to get loud. Again, I'll use, well, I'll use the first person and not the second person to make this point more clearly. Those, I'm a worthless piece of shit voices in the back of my head got really loud on this vacation, especially on the second part of the vacation when we were um, just recovering from a week of in Jamaica by going to this gorgeous ranch, this gorgeous opulent ranch in Colorado. Oh, by the way, that's the second time I've been to Jamaica in three months. That's another story. But I really felt, maybe it's the Catholic guilt. Maybe it's just this desire to accomplish something. But vacation was a real mind-bender for me this time. And I found myself more relaxed when I was working on finishing some chapters for my upcoming book than when i was actually doing the things you're supposed to do on vacation in the mountains i.e riding horses riding mountain bikes taking hikes although the hikes were awesome i did actually i felt very relaxed on the hikes because i felt like i was doing something sitting on the back of the horse doesn't feel like you're doing anything until you're falling off of it at which point you say to yourself this is me falling off of a horse but my point is is that i felt i felt much better about myself and i could enjoy the rest of the day better if i got up early and i worked for like 3 hours if i just focused on work for 3 hours i would i would feel better about my day now listen this is on a vacation the other people on these vacations are like hedge fund dudes they're partners in international accounting firms. They are senior partners at some of the biggest law firms in the world. They have real jobs. They have real jobs with real stress. And here I am, the unemployed ball guy working on you know his podcast and his book and his comedy. And he's the one that's stressed out about work. Does that, does it, is that? Am I broken? I'm broken. We're all a little broken. And that's my little story about my vacation. I hope it was worthwhile. So I just I just share that. In case there's other people out there who go on vacation and don't have the ability to relax. Ladies and gentlemen, this week's guest, by the way, the guests for this show just keep getting better and better. And I'm going to say I'm pretty damn proud of that. I appreciate all the people like AJ Jacobs who have shared their, who have both said yes to being on this show and then shared their contacts with me and said, hey, this guy's okay. He's going to show up, he's going to show up prepared. And he'll have an interesting conversation with you. So I am very grateful to AJ, as I said before, and I'm grateful to all the other guests I've had on. And by the way, if this is your first time listening to an episode of Crazy Money, I don't always ramble like this up front. And you should check out the incredible list of guests in those past episodes that we've had. Everybody from rock stars to academics to journalists to the editor-in-chief of Glamour and my 92-year-old father, who is quite the glamorous person himself in his own way. All right. This week's guest is Associate Professor in Philosophy and Research Fellow at the Global Priorities Institute, University of Oxford. That's not Oxford, Ohio. That's like Oxford, England again. Will McCaskill's academic research focuses on the fundamentals of effective altruism, which is the use of evidence and reason as opposed to anecdote and bloviating tweets, to help others by as much as possible with our time and money with a particular concentration on how to act given moral uncertainty. I promise you it's an interesting conversation, by the way. He is the author of Doing Good Better, Effective Altruism in a Radical New Way to Make a Difference. He's also the director of the Forethought Foundation for Global Priorities Research and the president of the Center for Effective Altruism. He is one of the founding members of the Effective Altruism Movement. Through a website called Giving What You Can, he encourages, he and his colleagues at the Center for Effective Altruism, encourage people to commit to donate at least 10% of their income to the most effective charities. Yes, at a certain point, I start to feel very guilty in this conversation. There are links to the websites you can use to take the pledge in the show notes, also some links to his other efforts, uh, including an organization called 80,000hours.org, which is a guide to helping you think about your career and the way you can use it to do the most good in the world. All right. In this conversation, we discuss everything from disease to factory farming to nuclear annihilation, which, by the way, is still on the table. It didn't stop after uh, Gorbachev like, softened Russia up. In fact, it might be back and like, back better than ever, not just because Stranger Things is back on the TV. Anyway, thanks for joining us. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Will McCaskill.
1: The things you probably have heard most about, things like prostate cancer and breast cancer and other cancers or other things that affect people in rich countries, um, that's why you've heard about them. And for the same reason, they get tons of funding. I mean, even just looking within cancers, prostate cancer, per kind of unit of harm it does in terms of the scale of the problem, it gets 50 times more funding than stomach cancer does. Is it more tragic for someone to die of prostate cancer than stomach cancer? No, it's like equally tragic. And so why is it the case that prostate cancer gets 50 times as much funding per person that gets
0: killed? because the exam is so fun. My name is Paul Olinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Hey, Will McCaskill, thank you for joining us on Crazy Money today.
1: It's great to be on. Thank you for having me.
0: Will, your most recent book about effective altruism, which I'll have you define in a moment, but your book is titled Doing Good Better. I was hoping it would be called Doing Good Well, but that could be too confusing. But define, if you will, define good. What does good mean? So, yeah, the account of
1: good I have in the book is how many people you affect and by how much. And if it's good, then how many people you affect positively. So... If I affect you, by how much am I making your life better? Where that could be by extending your life or by increasing the quality of life while you are alive. And I want to look at that, but look at that for every single person I affect. And so the total impact or I have or the total amount of good I do is everyone I affect multiplied by the amount by which I affect them in a good way.
0: So over the course of your lifetime, you could affect many different people in many different ways. How do you measure good? or progress there too.
1: Yeah. So obviously measuring good is difficult, but it's not impossible. Uh, So one way, which I talk about a lot in the book, is health economists use this metric that they call a quality adjusted life year, which is a way of comparing different health programs. So if I look at two different health programs I could run out, I can look at how big an impact do I have in terms of how many quality adjusted life years do I give people, which measures by how many years am I extending people's lives. So if I save your life, but then you get hit by a bus five minutes later, I haven't really helped you very much. Whereas if I save your life and then you know, 30 years later, you die of old age, that's you know my much larger benefit. But the second way I can help you is by improving your quality of life. So if you were gonna be disabled or have chronic pain or depression, I can make your life go better by uh, working on those things, treating those things, even if it means that you don't live any longer, but you just have a happier, more fulfilling life while you are alive. And that's the kind of metric for health um, measures. But in principle, we can do this for anything. For anything we do, we can think, by how much am I improving this person's life? Am I extending their life? Or am I increasing the quality of their life? And if I am increasing the quality of life, for how, by how much and for how long?
0: This is all part of your work in a space called effective altruism. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you?
1: Right. So effective altruism is the idea of trying to figure out with our scarce time and scarce money, how can we use that time and money to do as much as possible to help other people? So if we have this aim, I want to do as much good as possible. What are the things we should focus on? What causes? What charities should we give to? What careers should we pursue? And effective altruism is about trying to figure that out and then taking action on the basis of what we find.
0: So there's finite resources in the world and almost infinite need. And you want to try to figure out how to allocate those resources most efficiently.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Okay, so let's say I have $100,000 to give to charity, only because that makes math easy, right? You're a super smart guy. I'm a professor at Oxford. I'm going to make it real simple. What questions should I ask myself to ensure that I'm investing this as efficiently and wisely as I could do so?
1: It's a great question. So the first thing to really think about is what cause you're focusing on. So most people, when they pick a cause, tend to just focus on something they're personally passionate about or have a personal connection to. And that's super admirable and great, but it's unlikely to be the way to have the biggest positive impact because, you know, not many people I know suffer from malaria, for example. (laughs) But it's like this (laughs) huge problem, half a million people a year die every year of malaria. And so if I want to do as much good as possible when thinking about what cause to focus on, I want to look at those cause areas that are biggest in scale just the biggest problems the world faces, that are tractable so we can actually make progress on them. And kind of most unintuitively are the most neglected. So the ones where there just aren't that many resources going to them already. And within the effects of community, we tend to champion three core areas. One is global health and development. The second is actually the welfare of animals and factory farms. And the third are risks of global catastrophe, kind of low probability events, especially from new technology that could you know, leak major havoc in the world.
0: Isn't it sort of counterintuitive to think that, you know, the bigger a problem, the less a little guy like me can have an effect on solving that problem. And I say I have $100,000, call it $100, right? Yeah. How much of an impact can I really make with $100 on a global problem like malaria?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it just scales proportionally. So I think if you have $100,000, maybe you can do about a thousand times as much as if you have $100. Sure. And the way I think we should think about all of these problems. So global health and development is a huge problem. There's not really one problem. It's like a billion problems. It's a billion people who live <laughs> below $2 a day. And in fact, when you're targeting your donations at the very most effective things, even a small amount of money is doing a huge amount of good. So that $100, that's paying for twenty long-lasting insecticide-treated bed nets. That means that, I'll do the math, 40 children for two years who are protected against malaria. If you donate $3,000, you're, statistically speaking, probably going to save a child's life with that donation. And that's like amazing. That's like not a huge amount of money, but that's a huge amount of good you can do.
0: Okay, so let's dive into a little bit about each of these areas that you said were the biggest areas that need our attention. Global health and development. What's being done what are the biggest segments for making an impact within that large umbrella?
1: Great. Well, yeah, global health in general um, just has this great track record. We've done, made a tremendous progress on things like eradicating smallpox, reducing the number of polio cases down to almost zero. Some top things at the moment, I'll mention two. So one is malaria, as I mentioned. So very simple strategy of just distributing these insecticide-treated bed nets. We really know it works. There's just a huge amount of high-quality evidence Cost to save um, a child's life, typically it's under fives who would die of malaria, is like I say only a few thousand dollars. A second health program is deworming. So this is something that most people haven't heard about at all. But hundreds of millions of children live with can be dozens of worms in their intestines, and mm-hmm. these don't kill as many people as other diseases do. So they get a bit less of a, a bit less well known, um, but they do make kids sick. And there's evidence that it reduces earnings and number of hours worked kind of later in life. And they're just exceptionally easy to treat. So 50 cents will treat one child from the foremost common intestinal worms. And that 50 cents, that's not just the cost of the drug. The drug is almost free. but includes all the costs of distribution, all the costs of administration. Absolutely everything is rolled into that. So it's just this, you know, it's often described by the World Health Organization as a best buy for public health.
0: And then, so global health, I'm sorry, you mentioned three main buckets of areas of concern. Global health, what were the other two?
1: Yeah, the second was the industrial farming of
0: animals. Yes, yes, yes.
1: Factory yes. farming and the cruelty therein. And, and the second was uh, global catastrophic risks.
0: Existential risk, right. So I did have factory farming, yeah. actually, from your book. Okay, so factory farming. Why do I care about factory farming? What? How does that affect me personally?
1: I think the two key aspects of factory farming, so... I think, well, the first thing is just, I think most people care about animals to some extent. We get, like, outraged when, you know, a cat or a dog is abused. I think that's quite rightfully so. And, in fact, if you survey people on, like, what appropriate conditions are in farms, you think, you know, people really don't want there to be cruelty on factory farms. But people really don't know just actually how bad the living conditions are for animals, especially um, pigs and chickens in factory farms. They're just kept in really kind of horrific conditions where I think they have, you know, they're de-beaked, their tails are clipped off, they're extremely clouded. And I think, you know, their lives just contain more suffering than happiness. So <laughs> in a sense, I think when they're killed, that's the kind of best thing that happens to them in their lives. But the two most striking things about this cause area, one is just its sheer scale. So it's 50 billion animals every year that are killed for food. So that's, you know, every year, many times more animals kept in factory farmed conditions than there are people on the globe. And then the second is just how neglected this cause area is, where it's only a few tens of millions of dollars every year that are spent on trying to improve conditions in factory farms. And that means that the very most effective um, interventions haven't been taken. And so with that $100 you were mentioning, well, you can actually improve the living conditions of 10,000 chickens (laughs) with that $100 via uh, corporate cage-free campaigns. So campaigns that try and convince large retailers to move them buying eggs from hens in cage confinement and instead buying eggs from cage free.
0: One of the things that I think is really interesting about your book is you point out a lot of things that people are doing that they're doing it with the best of intentions, but they don't have the benefits that they think it's actually going to have. And I want to go deep on that in a few minutes. But with this one specifically, if I'm buying free range chickens, am I doing my part to have a chicken live a good life before I eat it?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it it definitely helps. It defi- it's like definitely good compared to buying chickens from worse conditions. The thing that I think is kind of striking is just how much more of an impact I think you can have via donations than via lifestyle changes. Tell me about that. So yeah, so I mentioned it's about something like 100 chickens per dollar that you can prevent from being in cage confinement. So if you think about, well, I could donate $100 um, over the course of a year to these corporate cage-free campaigns, you know, that's thousands of chickens in better conditions. Whereas if you decide to stop eating chicken or only buy free range, that might be 40 or 50 chickens.
0: I eat a lot of chickens, actually. But how does a corporate cage-free campaign work? What does that mean?
1: An organization like the Humane League, what they do is gather uh, data on consumer sentiment about the sort of attitudes that they want from you know, what sort of conditions do consumers actually want in farms? Then they go to major retailers like McDonald's, Subway, you know, Burger King and so on, and say, hey, here's all this data on what the conditions of chickens um, in your supply chain are like. That's actually pretty horrific. Also, this is just something that people don't want. We've got kind of strong data on this. Um, how about you change your, uh, change your views on this and instead move to being cage-free? Also, here are all these other companies that have taken these pledges to be cage-free. So. Perhaps right. you'll look like the, the unethical people if you don't do that. And it's ended so, up just being outstandingly effective.
0: So that donation goes to the, the lobbying of the corporations. It doesn't go to offset the, the cost of, of raising a chicken in a different way because, you know, McDonald's is going to say, our customers want cheap McNuggets. They don't want, they're going to value price over the life of this chicken.
1: Would yeah. So, I mean, certainly you you know, before these campaigns started, I would have maybe been skeptical about how well they'd work. But it turns out that companies are actually just very willing to make these pledges. And now it's the case that the top 50, all of the top 50 food retailers in the US have made these pledges now. And awesome. so I think this is just kind of, this is a way of kind of pushing, you know, there's growing sentiment with respect to animal welfare, I think, in the US and other countries. And this is kind of the turning some of that sentiment into conc- concrete action.
0: So let's talk about existential risk. Okay, yeah. That sounds like uh, science fiction, but it's actually real and worth discussing. What are we talking yeah, it's about? It's the
1: serious thing we should be thinking about. And again, it's in the category of things that are neglected, partly because they can sound, you know, a bit above your pay grades. But so an existential risk is a risk of some really major global catastrophe. The sort of thing that could lead to the collapse of civilization that could be permanent, or even the extinction of the human race, or something as bad as those things. So here's one just concrete example. We are progressively developing the ability to create man-made pathogens. So viruses just grown, you know, built in a lab. Um, and we can actually do this now. And the ability to do this is getting better every year. And it's really not very long. Certainly in the next d- decade or two, that we'll be able to create a virus that has a combination of properties of very high contagiousness, as high as the common cold, high lethality, as high as Ebola, and a high incubation period like HIV. And if so, and you were a terrorist group and you had the motivation to do so, you could affect everyone in the world with a fatal virus before anyone even knew. Mm. Um, And that's quite scary. That's a way in which, you know, civilization as we know it could come to an end. I don't think that scenario is particularly likely, but what we need to do is assess both the likelihood of an outcome occurring and how bad it would be And there's arguments for thinking that these kind of worst case outcomes for civilization are very neglected, especially by philanthropists. And so, and they would be extremely bad, not just the deaths of kind of everyone on the planet, but also the loss of all future generations. And that's why a lot of people in effect, of altruism are now particularly concerned about existential risks.
0: I would be concerned about existential risk, but Donald Trump has assured me that he has made the world safe from terrorists. So I'm... (laughs) I've, um, I, sleep, I sleep very well at night. Okay, yeah, no comment on that. <laughs> so, so you clearly define the problem. What can you do about it? Like, how do you keep this from happening?
1: Yeah, well, I think um, there's various organizations you can fund as well. And these tend to be, you know, less like distributing bed nets or engaging kind of activism and more along the lines of research and uh, policy advice. So one kind of historical case study that, really inspires me is funding of the Brookings Institution led to, in the uh, late 1980s, uh, led to the Nunn-Luger Act, which was a kind of more cooperative relation between the US and USSR, actually led to the deactivation of over 6,000 nuclear weapons. Um, and that was as a result of philanthropic funding. Wow. So, and that's, you know, made the world considerably safer. The sort of things we can do now, you know, one example is the Center for Health Governance at John Hopkins University, which does policy advice uh, in order to help the U.S. government address some of these kind of worst case risks from uh, bioterrorism or even kind of natural pandemics. You can also fund research into things like broad spectrum antivirals, broad spectrum kind of vaccines, so that if some of these worst case outcomes did arise, this is in the kind of biological... um, the case of bio-risk, we would have like much better protections against them. And this sort of work would also help against pathogens like natural pandemics too, which is an additional important bonus.
0: Okay. So you're talking about problems that are again, gigantic and I have hundred dollars or even if I have a hundred thousand dollars, should I divide my pool into three and pick a charity in each of these? Or what's your advice to the individual donor?
1: Yeah, honestly, my advice is to if you're happy to do it, to pick the best thing and fund that. And the reason is, you know, if you decide, you know, you reflect and you decide that one particular charity is the most cost-effective, is going to do the most good, well, if it does the most good with the first $10, it'll probably also do the most good with the second $10 you could give it, and the third $10, all the way up to the whole kind of $100. And then you also save on the kind of additional administrative costs that charities would bear by you know, multiple charities having to process smaller donations.
0: No risk of overfunding any of these charities with my paltry hundred dollars.
1: If you're the billionaire, if you're Bill Gates, things change a lot.
0: Okay, <laughs> so that's exa- that. that leads exactly to my next question, right? Okay, so who's more effective in solving these problems or who should be charged with solving these? Is, are these governmental problems or are they NGO problems or what's the proper combination thereof?
1: I would love governments to be taking significantly more action on all of the issues that I've described. And the cases where I actually think there's the strongest case for philanthropy and where I think philanthropy can have the biggest impact is on cases where both markets and kind of democratic governments fail. So in the poorest countries, the kind of governments of those countries are often very weak. And obviously, people in poor countries don't get a vote over who's president of the United States even more so when it comes to non-human animals and to future people as well. They don't get a vote. They don't get to participate in markets. And so it's very unsurprising that they're systematically neglected by by both governments and by, you know, companies, their interests aren't taken care of. And then it's like philanthropy is kind of like a fallback option.
0: We're building a wall against future people here in America. We just don't have space for them, honestly.
1: Mm-hmm. That was a joke. <laughs> um, I mean... Yeah, I mean it's kind of true. Future people
0: don't pay taxes. Come on, that's not—they don't get a vote. Yeah, they will pay taxes. They will pay. I know. I get it. I get it.
1: That doesn't help with four-year election cycles.
0: No, it doesn't. Some of us here don't really get. Don't feel like our vote goes very far either. But that's uh, gerrymandering is a whole other question. A month or so ago, or however long ago. There was a a very serious fire at the cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. Within days, philanthropists stepped up and committed a billion dollars to, or more than a billion dollars to rebuild this. The reward for their generosity was being pilloried in the press by people who opined that there were much bigger problems in the world to be solved. I'm of two minds on this. On the one hand, these are people that dedicated their private resources to help fix a public good. On the other hand, there's probably much bigger causes in the world that could be addressed with this billion dollars. How should I think about this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I want to think about it as a kind of, the right response would be kind of yes and rather than no but. So mm-hmm. the way I assess it, it's like the status quo is that people don't give very much at all. If someone starts giving, trying to use their money to make the world a better place, we should be celebrating that. At the same time, it is the case that, I mean, even in the case of not Dame, they receive more money than they, can, than they need to actually rebuild and repair the damage, right. which is kind of striking. Kind of so I think we should be actively trying to encourage people to donate to those kind of very most effective places. But I think it's like quite an ineffective way of encouraging them to do so by criticizing people when they actually do try and do some amount of good, even if you think that, is kind of somewhat misguided. So it's a tricky issue. It's hard. I think we should be constantly trying to push people onto the most effective causes. So far, I haven't really converted anyone by uh, criticizing them when they're trying to do a good thing.
0: <laughs> you don't think criticism isn't a motivating factor?
1: I think we should focus on the positives.
0: So let's assume that most people are, have very good intentions and they want to make a difference. What are some common mistakes that people are making in the ways, well, let me rephrase that since we don't want to use criticism as a motivating Mm -hmm. factor in what ways can well intentioned, good intentioned people invest their money better. So give me an example of some charities that are being funded generously where that money could be better allocated to do more good in the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's quite systematic. So people in general just tend to not think very much about where they're donating. So supposing you're making a major purchase, you're buying a TV or a new computer, or certainly if you're buying a car or a house, you do like a lot of the search into this. You'd be investing time, you'd be on Amazon, you'd be looking at different reviews and so on. But for some reason, when it comes to charity, people just tend to kind of give to the first person that purchases them on the street. They often do it quite unthinkingly. And so the biggest thing is to actually just start doing some of the search. And there are organizations like GiveWell, which makes recommendations in global health and development. The Open Philanthropy Project, which is a major foundation, but that publishes all of its research. Or we have a program called the Effective Altruism Funds, which allows you to donate to top charities in a variety of cause areas by kind of giving your donation to an expert who can then reallocate it. That's like the very first step and will allow you just to obviously have a much bigger impact than if you're donating to the first charity that approaches you or to one of the kind of standard mega charities that you you might have heard about. So I think that's like by far the biggest thing. A second thing I would say is just in terms of different ways of trying to do good, whether that's kind of, people often see just many different things as high impact, like you can change your lifestyle, change ethical consumption, you can donate, you could volunteer and so on. It seems to me like the biggest ways of having an impact are generally via your donations, and then if you're willing to do so via your career too. And over and over again, I've just tended to find that well-targeted donations to the most effective organizations can do a lot more good than lifestyle changes, ethical consumption sort of behaviors. And you might want to do that too. There's nothing stopping you from doing both. I'm like a vegetarian and I also donate. But I think the thing we should be really trying to champion is thinking about how we use our financial resources. And that being like, if you want to do good, that's the kind of obvious first thing to try. Whereas at the moment people think about like, oh, what should I stop buying? And it's actually very complicated. And often you are just not having as much impact as if you focused your donations on these most targeted ways of doing good.
0: Okay. So let's just say that I gave up this very profitable career of comedy and podcasting. And I Mm -hmm. said, I have a choice that I can make, and I want to do the most good in the world. Should I go to Wall Street and be an investment banker,
1: mm-hmm.
0: earn to give, or should I go dedicate my life to digging wells in Africa? How yeah. can I do the most good.
1: Great. It's a great question. So, yeah. So, early on, I definitely pushed this earning to give message pretty hard. And I think there's, you know, there's strong arguments for why earning to give, that is going into a high-earning career and donating um, a significant proportion of your earnings. Fifty percent is a common amount among the people that I do know who are learning like to give.
0: Sorry, did you say fifty-five zero percent?
1: Five zero percent, yeah. I mean, it makes. That's pre-tax. It, uh, no, that's post-post-tax. Or oh, like, if you get the tax deduction, it ends up being quite similar. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Well, if you think about it, if you're in your hypothetical, you're like, well, I could dig wells in Africa. There, you're getting paid. I don't know, twenty thousand dollars a year, or you could be earning a hundred thousand and donate fifty percent, and you're still earning twice as much. Right. And so over time, my views on this have become more nuanced. And I think it really depends on the cause area. So in the case of global health and development, I just think your money can do a huge amount. And there's things that are just like buying bed nets and providing children with bed nets, where the gap is just on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars. And if we had more money, we could do this and people's lives would be saved. In contrast, if your cause area, the cause area was like, you know, doing scientific research, and you're like a a brilliant young undergraduate, I think you probably just can do more good by becoming a scientist than by earning to give to fund more scientists. Because there's already a lot of funding in science and the thing that's the real bottleneck is having kind of brilliant scientists. So, and that's the case, I think, for existential risks. I think it's more about having good people kind of working in this area. In your own case, you know, maybe I would say you've got this platform on a podcast, more people should know about this idea that's like perhaps the best way you could do the most good. Whereas other areas, farm animal welfare, perhaps, and I think certainly global health and development, there's a much stronger case for just saying, look, the thing that's the real bottleneck at the moment that's going to do the most good is is money. But I think it depends a lot on what your particular alternative opportunities are.
0: It's not just that people aren't giving efficiently, it's that people aren't giving or that they're not giving as much as they could be giving. Mm. And one of the points you demonstrate charitably is... Just how wealthy people are in the West Mm. relative to the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was pretty shocked when I first found these figures where I was a graduate student at the time. I was living on about 9,000 pounds per year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really didn't have that much money. That put me into the richest 15% of the world's population. Did you feel rich? I I did not feel rich. I felt exceptionally poor. And so it's just striking that if you're a member of a rich country, certainly if you're a middle class member of a rich country, you are in probably the richest few percent of the world's population. And so, you know, in my own case, even after donating kind of academic salary, I donate currently about 20% um, of my income. I'm still comfortably in the top couple of percent of the world's population. And so it's mm-hmm. kind of weird. Obviously most people would think, well, donating 20%. That's aggressive. They sort of like, think it's aggressive. <laughs> it's aggressive, it seems like yeah. you know, quite a bit. But like I'm only in the richest like 2% rather than the richest 1.8%. It seems like that's hard to really cash out as um, this kind of major sacrifice relative to other people in the world who are literally a hundred times poorer, literally living on a hundredth as much as I'm living on. And I think this is just a fact that's among the most important facts in the world today. And it's very poorly known, very poorly understood because these numbers also, they take into account the fact that money goes further overseas.
0: So it's real dollars as opposed to, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, a dollar in, in the developing world goes much further than it does in New York city or London, for example.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: You compare several different organizations that do different things and say, okay, well, which of these places should you, should you direct your giving toward if you want to do the most good? And one of the things that was interesting to me is that direct payments to people in the developing world is one of the most efficient ways to give. So if I could take, let's even, you know, 1% of my income and give it to somebody in the developing world, how does that improve their life relative to the sacrifice I make uh, on my end?
1: Yeah. So in the book, I call this the, the hundredfold multiplier. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes two facts. One is this fact that if you're about an average earner in the U.S., you're in financial terms a hundred times richer than the poorest people in the world, the poorest 700 million people. Take that fact, combine it with a second fact, which is about the relationship between money and happiness. And so money does help buy you happiness, but the amount by which it buys you happiness decreases very rapidly. Mm-hmm. So a doubling of your income buys about the same much. It buys about the same amount of additional well-being. Put those two things together, it means that. If you take some proportion of your income and give it to the poorest people in the world, you're doing 100 times as much to benefit those people as you would have done to benefit yourself.
0: So their marginal utility is massive and my marginal cost is teeny tiny.
1: Yeah, exactly. So think about it like you would reduce your income by 1%. You'd increase the income of 100 people by 1%. And so you do 100 times as much good
0: so I'm giving up a new flat screen TV and they're eating exactly. <laughs> another.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think the relationship between money and well being is, I think I'm like understating the case um, in the assumption because exactly as you described the thing, you know, I donate, I think I'm like literally no less happy as a result. Perhaps I'm Are even you? more happy because I get like the, you know, yeah, the personal rewards of the warm glow of donating.
0: Because you get to feel superior to everybody else. Is that, is that, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm aiming for with this whole thing. It's like the point of my life and just no one, yeah, no one has yet learned. <laughs> so does it make you happier to give 20%? Does, do you feel satisfaction? Do you feel a connection to, to the money that you're giving away?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially in, you know, like, cause everyone goes through times in life, including me, of just feeling quite down, feeling unmotivated feeling, I don't know, you can, you know, it's easy to feel worthless. And even in those times, you can think, well, I'm doing one thing. (laughs) Like, even if I'm not achieving anything with my life at the moment, like some kid is eating, some kid is not dying of a horrific tropical disease, um, just in virtue of me, like doing my job and like being able to donate this. And that's like, that's pretty motivating. Yeah.
0: So so you kind of uh, refer to a Schindler type of attitude here. And at a certain point, can you, can you walk around and you live your life and not think about the latte or the flat white you're buying in terms of what that could do for somebody in the developing world?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is a great question and it's definitely is something I've struggled with where you can get into this mindset where suddenly, yeah, absolutely. Every single decision you make, I used to like, to spend 20 minutes deciding what box of cornflakes to buy. <laughs> can I, you know, can I justify the like the kind of nicer cornflakes? That's a really bad path to go down. And so the thing that I recommend is just, you know, you take some time out from your normal life. Perhaps it's like a weekend that you spend thinking about this, perhaps it's a bit longer, and you think just like, well, what level am I comfortable with? What am I happy with? you know, what's the kind of balance between, you know, my own life and altruism that I'm happy to strike. And that's just going to vary for everyone. Like everyone's in a different circumstance. I'm in like, my life's just really good. I'm able to perhaps make a larger financial sacrifice than other people who are in more difficult life circumstances. You figure that out for yourself. You make that commitment. And maybe that's 1%. Maybe that's 10%. Maybe it's more. And then you live by that. And you're like, I've made my decision now. I have my two buckets. I've got my altruism bucket. I've got my life bucket, and I'm. I think of these as two different worlds, and that can be hard to like implement in practice. But it's definitely the way I, I would encourage everyone to try and think about it.
0: Well, on the one hand, we probably all should be more uncomfortable and thinking about how fortunate mm-hmm. we are, and on the other hand, <laughs> you got to get to work every day without being. Yeah, peril, exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, what do you do with your twenty percent? Where does that money go?
1: So. Historically, I've tended to give to these um, top development charities. Recently, over time, I've gotten more and more convinced by the arguments that we're really neglecting the very long run and very really neglecting these low probability events of extremely uh, extremely bad outcomes. So the area I'd be most inclined to give to now is, is part of... So one of my organizations, the Center for the Effective Altruism, has these effective altruism funds where... If I say, look, I just really care about the very long-term future, then, and I, I'm worried about existential risks, I can donate to this fund, and then people can say, okay, we've got you know, $2 million in the fund. We think this is the best organization doing work in this area. It just needs 200000 so we'll completely fund that. Then we'll move on to you know, the second-best organization. needs 600000 and they can allocate that money in a, a centralized way. Whereas if I, as an individual donor, was just going to donate to one of these small organisations, I might misallocate. And so that is now where I tend to donate at the moment. So in particular for ensuring that you know developments in potentially transformative and potentially risky technology, um, like synthetic biology, ensuring that it goes well rather than poorly.
0: So I mentioned earlier that you make a lot of counterintuitive and potentially very unpopular assertions in the book. You imply that good intentions lead to waste, perhaps even to harm. And you make some references to things like scared straight, micro lending. You may have said, make a wish, or maybe I put that in there. Cancer is, is really, really well funded relative to other things. Yep. Talk to me a little bit about these areas that have more money than they can put to use effectively.
1: Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I really, like I say, with everyone who's trying to do good on any of the things you've mentioned, I want to be kind of encouraging towards them. In general, you know, most attempts to do good, very few of them, I think, do harm. But some do. You mentioned Scared Straight. Um, that's a program that sends juvenile kids to jail for a few hours to try and scare them out of a life crime. That increases crime rates. We should not be doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's awful that we continue to do so. But yeah, but one of the things that ends up being unintuitive is this idea of neglectedness, this idea of trying to focus your efforts on things that aren't already getting as much attention. Because the things you probably have heard most about are things like prostate cancer and breast cancer and other cancers or other things that affect people in rich countries. Um, That's why you've heard about them. And for the same reason, they get tons of funding. I mean, even just looking within cancers, I think this figure is right, is that plastic cancer per kind of unit of harm. It does in terms of the scale of the problem, it gets 50 times more funding than stomach cancer does. Mm. And now is it more tragic for someone to die of plastic cancer than stomach cancer? No, it's like equally tragic. And so why is it the case that plastic cancer gets 50 times as much funding per you know, person that gets killed?
0: Because the exam is so fun. Because the
1: exam is fun. <laughs> Um, but no, I think it is in part because of a, uh, you know, it's got, a there's a gender identity to it. And um, uh. we have campaign, we have campaigns around that, or there's just various psychological reasons where some conditions are uh, more salient than others. But then what's just looking within cancers. When we look at things like poor people in poor countries or animals in cages, in factory farms, or let alone people who eat, don't even exist yet, they're extremely out of sight and out of mind. And that, both explains why it's kind of unintuitive to focus on them sometimes, but also why it's so impactful if you do.
0: So you mentioned a couple of other things like disaster relief. Yeah. More fun. Why does disaster relief get so much funding relative to its actual needs?
1: Again, this is just a, a kind of quirk of human psychology is that there's an earthquake and, you know, several thousand people die perhaps. And that's news that makes the front page. And that's regarded as very salient whereas the 5,000 people that died of malaria today, for some reason that doesn't get classed as a catastrophe as a natural disaster, but it is. It's just ongoing.
0: Wow. And so
1: we become inured to ongoing natural disasters, whereas if something's new, then it becomes newsworthy, funding kind of pours in. So I would rather, what I don't want to do is decrease the amount of empathy and people con- concern people feel for natural disasters. What I do want it to do is elevate the amount of concern people feel for ongoing natural disasters.
0: Fair enough. Now, I have been in the last couple of years putting a lot of work into anti-sweatshop campaigns. I've been buying fair trade coffee and reducing my carbon imp- impact by buying locally produced goods, and you told me I've been wasting my time.
1: Yeah, I mean, in those cases, I'm going to kind of <laughs> kind of stand by that. Uh, I'm glad you've been following my book to the letter. So yeah, we'll go through the kind of examples one by one. So buying locally produced goods. It's often the case that this does not have, is not actually a good way of reducing your carbon footprint. One example is like, you know, I live in the UK. Do you want to buy tomatoes that were grown in the UK or tomatoes that were grown in Spain? Well, there is an environmental cost to move tomatoes from Spain to the UK, but it's also just much easier to grow them in Spain. And uh-huh. so the costs of growing them are much less.
0: So perhaps they have to use fewer fertilizers and uh, herbicides. Yeah, all,
1: and green, yeah, greenhouses are the big thing. You can just, you have a longer kind of outdoor going season in warmer countries. Mm-hmm. And this is just, you know, it's just one example, but it is one of the challenges of kind of consumer activism in the sense of changing what you buy. It's just, it's, it's very non-targeted. It's very hard for the consumer to know and to be well-informed about, like, what are the things that are having an impact versus what things aren't. So you mentioned kind of sweatshops too, and there were some big campaigns to, you know, buy, again, locally produced goods, buy American rather than buy international. And it is the case that, like, these jobs that we're talking about are, like, really unpleasant jobs. They're really horrific. But that doesn't mean that, like, buying American products are making poor people better off. In fact, they're making them worse off because people are working in these jobs because they're the best source of employment they have. And Mm -hmm. for a developing country, this is definitely true for the U.S., true for the U.K., true for South Korea that's moved very rapidly from being a poor to a rich country. As you have a period of industrialization, you're moving from even worse farming jobs or unemployment to a kind of industrialized economy, which does have what by our standards of unpleasant working conditions and in absolute terms are. But that's the path to having a developed um, successful country like South Korea is today.
0: It seems like some of these things that you know we took for granted 5 years ago or 10 years ago we're we're now changing our thinking on. How do you see effective altruism evolving over the next decade?
1: Yeah, so it's definitely evolved a lot so far where the two ways in which it's evolved for sure are less emphasis on donations and earning to give, more emphasis on people working in areas of research, policy or social entrepreneurship as well. And secondly on the causes that it's focused on. Um, where increasing attention on this issue of existential risks, where I see it developing, I mean, in my own thinking at least. So as I've taken more and more seriously, the just the neglect of future generations combined with their sheer number—just truly almost everyone who ever lives, I believe, will be in the future rather than the present or the past. <laughs> we can
0: affect them. I maybe. hope. You're, I hope you're right. I. But,
1: I mean, maybe we'll do not, ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we'll do ourselves in beforehand, but we have, you know, we have control over that. If so, what should we do about that? What are the best things that we can do? And trying to mitigate these existential risks is one option, and I think it's like fairly compelling. But there's potentially other things we can do as well. So improving um, political decision making and governance. So one organization I've been championing is the Center for Election Science, which promotes approval voting. This uh, basically just doesn't vote for one candidate, you can vote for as many candidates as you like. Um, it's an incredibly simple change to how we do voting, but the mathematical properties are radically different. It means that rather than having the leftmost 50% or the rightmost 50% win the election, it sways back and forth between the two, and you've got a risk of spoilers where Ralph Nader comes in and it means that one candidate wins while another. Uh, instead, of approval voting gets rid of the spoiler effect, means that it's the middle 50% or like middle majority that elects candidates into power. And it's far, far better at representing the will of the people. And this is just something where I just don't know what all the effects of it are going to be. But I think a world in which people have a better tool at representing the preferences in democratic elections is going to look kind of a lot better. And I would expect that to have kind of long run um, benefits for future generations. Similarly, if I think about ways of giving more political representation to future generations as well. It's obviously a challenge because they can't vote for themselves. But I think there are some things we can do that might help with that in the way, same way as we've managed to give effectively greater political representation to environmental concerns over the last 100 years. And that's via legislation, that's via having um, select committees of politicians who are uh, designed to represent future generations. That's like the category of things that are like how, what are the ways we can have very long-lasting benefit? I still feel like I have a very poor understanding of that now. And I think that's something where I imagine we'll learn a lot over the coming decade.
0: Your ideas on how to address big problems are appropriately large and future thinking. Some people might call them a bit crazy. Who are your critics and what do they say about you? Okay, terrific. So interestingly- I mean, I mean this in all sincerity. I'm not trying to trip you up at all. I, I, yeah, I really no, no,
1: uh, no, I love the question. Yeah, interestingly, we've had uh, some amount of criticism. So I think overall, we've had less criticism than I would have expected. We've had some amount of criticism from a kind of left-wing perspective, Mm -hmm. where the criticism is often framed as that we're not addressing kind of systematic problems um, in the world. Uh, I think that's not quite the right way of expressing it, because we often are addressing systematic problems like industrial farming of animals or... Lack of attention to existential risks is a systemic problem too. But if you antecedently think, that, like, really, it's capitalism that's the root of all the problems in the world. Hey, um, whoa, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Then, uh, well, so if you think that and, you know, we're not focusing on it, we're more working kind of within kind of capitalist system, then you might have the kind of major objections to what we do. And I spent, like, a lot of time trying to understand this. And I think it just does bottom down into you know, I have like a lot of objections to the current kind of economic and political order, but of kind of all the things I'd want to change in the world. Like at what point is it that I get to like no longer having private ownership of property? And it's like, you know, really far down compared to like things like improving political representation of future generations or, you know, better international trade deals. I often actually think that means having freer trade, So that's in a sense being more capitalistic. Like I think the fact that, the U.S. and EU and Japan subsidizes um, farm farming in various ways, is an extremely bad thing. In a sense, therefore, I want them to be more capitalistic. So mm. there, that's just a, like I think a kind of deep ideological difference, and that's been a source of um, some criticism. We've also had some criticism from kind of existing chari- charity evaluators. So we had um, uh, someone from a couple of people from Charity Navigator wrote an article called. The elitist philanthropy of so-called effective altruism.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I just then, read it.
1: Okay, yeah, nice. And they referred to <laughs> us as defective altruists for yes, the, the yes. entire article. That
0: was a bit of mudslinging,
1: I thought. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, how did how did you get into this? You're a young guy. How did you how did you get into this and get so deep in it so quickly in your career?
1: Yeah, well, I was always very convinced by the arguments of a philosopher called Peter Singer, who argued that we have you know, this major obligation to help um, improve the lives of people in poor countries. Where his argument was just like, you know, imagine if you're walking past a child drowning in a shallow, shallow pond. Yeah, imagine this person, they're walking past, they see a child, they're drowning in a shallow pond, and they think, wow, I could save that child. And imagine this person then thinks, oh, but wait, I'm actually wearing this really nice suit. The suit actually costs like $2,000. And if I run in and save the child, I'm not, I'm going to ruin my suit. Imagine that person just walks on by, lets the child down. In moral philosophy, we have a technical term for someone like that. They're called an asshole. And um, <laughs> uh, Peter Singer's argument, essentially, is that, while well, we would all agree this person is a model for walking by and not saving that child. The cost of $2,000 to protect a suit just does not compare to the benefit of saving a child's life. But what he points out is that we are in that situation. We're in that situation all the time. We could be spending two thousand, well, a few thousand dollars in order to save a child's life. And I found that argument very compelling. And I really did not absolutely nothing on the basis of the belief that that argument was compelling. For quite a few years, I, just, I felt quite guilty instead. <laughs> and it wasn't very productive. Um, but that changed when I met another uh, philosophy graduate student at the time called Toby Ord, who had also taken these ideas very seriously but had made a commitment to give away, he planned most of his income over the course of his life on this basis. And had started doing research into, you know, what organizations were going to have the biggest impact with his donations. And for me, just as soon as I had that kind of tribe of two people, that one other person who I could, you know, connect with and make me feel a little bit less like an alien for my beliefs, that was kind of just what I needed to actually start taking action on this. And so then in 2009, I set up an organization called Giving What We Can, which encouraged people to give at least 10% of their income to the most effective charities and was doing research to try and recommend what charities are most effective.
0: Mm-hmm. Peter Singer, he wrote The Most Good You Can Do. Is that That's right, co- yeah. And th- another book on effective altruism. Yeah. And has Toby written a book that we can point people to? Uh,
1: Toby has a book that will come out in February 2020, I believe on existential risk, in fact. Oh, cool, we'll
0: look for that. So you talk about, okay, I think some people think, I'm probably guilty of thinking this too. Well, let me take a step back. I remember reading probably a 19 years ago, some criticism of Bill Gates. It might've even been from Ted Turner who had just committed a billion dollars to the United Nations. And I think he was kind of prodding Bill Gates to step up and do more philanthropically. And I think Bill's attitude, I call him Bill because, you know, we're tight. Yeah, that that's
1: his, that's easy, I take it, yeah.
0: Totally. So his attitude was, I'm running this company, I'll get to my philanthropic efforts yeah. and get to them he has in a huge way. Yeah. Some people think, I think, I think, and I, we, my wife and I, we give away a pretty meaningful amount of money. We could certainly be doing more, but I kind of think like, well, let me get through the requirements of life. Let me get my kids off to college and then you know maybe when I'm 70, I'll mm-hmm. start thinking about what to do with my charity or what to do with my my resources in a more meaningful way. Is that the right way to think about it or should we all be pushing ourselves to give away what we have now?
1: I think it's a really tricky issue. Um, I think one major consideration is just, will you actually donate at this later date? <laughs> <laughs>
0: totally, totally, I swear, Well, uh-huh. I swear.
1: Yeah. So, it's, you know, it's very easy to have like lofty goals um, yeah. and then obviously not follow through. Bill Gates, obviously an exception. Um, he really has um, kind of gone all in. A second thing is, you know, whether you think your values might change in between now and then too. Maybe you don't really trust your 70 year old self to make good decisions about where you're going right. to
0: donate. He's a future person and future people have uh, value, right? Good. Well, I
1: mean, maybe he's smarter than you are. So maybe you actually should be be saving up for him.
0: I I hope he's smarter than me, please.
1: (laughs) There are, I think, major considerations about just, you know, what will you follow through? Will you follow through in a good way? Mm -hmm. I think for entrepreneurs, often it just, this makes a lot of sense. Because being an entrepreneur, you're packing many years of, packing decades of work into a small number of years. You just don't have time to think about philanthropy at the same time. Whereas you'll, you know, have an exit, maybe not be running the company and suddenly find you've got quite a lot of time that you can spend on philanthropy. There are considerations either way when it comes to how much of an impact you can make. And I think again, it depends on cause area, where I think when it comes to global health and development, I just think the world's getting a bit shut over time. The number of people who are living in extreme poverty is decreasing over time. The amount of money in terms of Aid flows that going to the poorest people is increasing over time. And also aid is just getting smarter as well. So we're getting better at focusing on the most effective, most effective programs. So with respect to global health and development, I expect us to the best opportunities to be worse in you know, 20, 30 years than they are today. And so that would motivate quite strongly donating now rather than donating later. If you're thinking about these very long run aims, because I think we're still at such a nascent stage of, under, of understanding about you know, how to do good a, from a long-term perspective, there's more of, a case for, you know, more of a case for delay there. It might be the case that you don't actually feel very uncertain. Maybe you think, look, climate change is just, you know, clearly the best way of um, well, mitigating climate change is clearly the best way of improving long run outcomes. In which case, in the case of climate change, you know, every year of delay is like really quite meaningful. So again, that would be a reason for going kind of sooner. But if you just think we're going to learn a lot about the relevant area, that can be a significant reason for delay.
0: But for people who want to make a difference, there's no time like now and it's never been, there's never been better information at our disposal to invest those dollars as wisely.
1: Yeah. My advice in general would be for people to be giving now, because I think it's just, it's, you know, it's good to build up a habit (laughs) it's easy to have aims about what you'll do in 20 years and not follow through. And often it is the case for the best opportunities for drying up.
0: Hey, before we finish up, Mike, is there anything you wanted to ask before we, before we let Will go? If I could ask something, it would be about the, how do you sell this to the common person who's just going, not common, but the person who's just going to brush over it as hippy dippy, give your money away at, what is the sell to, to people to enrich their lives? And you brought it up earlier about being a little bit happier. And I wonder for you, what do you feel when you're, when you give money away? Like, wh- how does it enrich your life? How does it make it feel like it's being worthwhile? And how would you sell that to people in a, in a very uh, understandable layman term?
1: Yeah. I mean, I do think that people's attitudes giving you know you would naturally think oh i give some percentage of my income this is a sacrifice i really don't think it is i think most people want you know imagine yourself on your deathbed and you think oh no i like you know i spent all this money on this you know slightly more lavish house or fancier car or something well what, what a waste you can imagine someone saying that can you imagine yourself on your deathbed saying oh well i i spent all this money and I saved a dozen children's lives. What a waste. I really just don't think you can imagine um, regretting yourself doing that. And I think we just do have an intrinsic motivation, normally, to try and make the world better. And I think what blocks people is, well, it just seems really complicated. It seems really hard. And I think often it is. But we've kind of done the hard work. We've made it easy. Like a few thousand dollars, you can save a child's life. This is absolutely amazing. This is something that you should like really feel... I'm um, very good about doing and that's within the reach of you know anyone listening to this podcast But you, know, you know donations over the course of their lives
0: I think the one child where well, there's many challenges, but one of the challenges is hey I'm gonna write a check for however large it is Regardless mm-hmm. It's like I can empirically understand that that money is going to be invested to save lives But I'm not gonna see it on the other hand If I build a gym at my high school, you know who's going to see that? My damn ex-girlfriend and and the JV basketball coach who cut me, you know? And so there's this sort of lack of attachment or lack of visibility of that, of the benefit that that money is actually going toward.
1: Yeah, well, I think, again, this is where kind of different buckets come in. So maybe you can have the bucket that's dedicated to personal consumption, bucket that's dedicated to vindictiveness towards your exes <laughs> um, and the satisfaction you gain from that and then you know another bucket as well dedicated to you know just trying to do as much good as possible and I think the sort of rewards you get from each of them are just quite different and I think this is true empirically from the people I know it just does like add one component to a jigs- to the jigsaw puzzle of a, a meaningful life um to have the knowledge that you're actually just making a transformative impact in people's lives, even if you don't know who they are.
0: Will, before we go, you've mentioned several different organizations. Are there a couple of places you want to point people to find out more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, so you should definitely check out effectivealtruism.org and sign up to the newsletter if you want to learn more. If you're interested in taking a 10% pledge to give, uh, go on to givingwhatwecan.org. And uh, if you're interested in just donating, to high impact charities in health and development. Um, GiveWell.org is excellent. And then finally, if you wanna go the extra step and think about your career in terms of how you can do the most good, 80,000hours.org provides really in-depth advice on using your career to have the maximum impact.
0: I will say that GivingWhatWeCan has, GivingWhatWeCan.org has a very cool tool on there where you can put your income in and see just how fabulously wealthy you are relative to the rest of the world. Absolutely. So, uh, go do that. Hey, Will, you've been very generous with your time today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the work that you do. We really appreciate you being a part of uh interview today. Thanks so much for having me on. So that was Dr. Will McCaskill from the university of Oxford discussing effective altruism, his book, doing good, better. The link for the book is in the show notes, go check it out. His book made me think, made me think about how much I'm giving and how I'm giving. And at the very least it's thought provoking and maybe in the long run it will actually change lots of people's behavior and we can eradicate some of the ills of mankind more quickly than we otherwise would have. If you want to see links to the Center for Effective Altruism, the 10% Doning Pledge, you can find that in the show notes also. You can also find a link to my website, paulolinger.com, where I have links to all my upcoming shows and to my new comedy EP, Alive on the Upper West Side, recorded in December 2018 at the West Side comedy club in New York City near where I used to live used to run around in that neighborhood Had a lot of fun doing the comedy there ladies and gentlemen if you like what we are doing we being Me and Michael Carano editor producer of podcast extraordinaire Do me a favor take a moment to rate and review us on whatever App you're using to listen to us those ratings go a long way in helping our podcast surface to the top In searches and stuff like that and I greatly appreciate it write some notes down Email me at paulollinger at gmail.com with suggestions for upcoming guests, comments, questions, concerns, etc. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Go make it a great one. Bye-bye.